I think it's essential to talk about sex and sexuality across boundaries because we're all living in the same world. Judaism is so built on gender difference. The fundaments of Judaism are about women are fundamentally, essentially different from men. For me, the key is to not overlook the enormous informing quality of intimacy. One of the reasons why Mashiach is late in coming is because people do not take time on the mystery of kisses before the great love. You're listening to Come and Listen, Jewish Food for Thought. I'm Hannah Kapnick. And my name is Alyssa Kapnick. Today we're talking about sexuality and gender. This is a museum for your ears. In this episode, we'll look at the potential of sex, how sexuality and gender are dealt with in and outside of Jewish law, and finally, we'll talk about what it means to be queer and Jewish. First, some background. Sex was forbidden in the ancient Jewish temples, but there are places in Torah and Jewish thought where sex is talked about as a responsibility. It's literally one of the first things God commands of humans in the Torah. Be fruitful and multiply. In Jewish law, the man is not entitled to sex. The woman is. This is philosophy teacher Bruce Heitler. The man owes the woman a duty of onah, time, it's called, and she has a claim on him to spend sexual time depending on his profession with different frequency. If you're unemployed every night, if you're some kind of a merchant once or twice a week, if you're a caravan driver, you have to come back at least once a month, if you're a sailor, it might be even less frequently, if you're a tourist scholar, I think it's once a week. But the notion is that, that the default position is the woman is entitled to sex whenever she wants it. The man isn't entitled to sex except when his wife wants it. We spoke to Rabbi Zalman Schechter Shalomi, born in 1924 in Poland. He's a mystic and the founder of the Jewish Renewal Movement. When two people make love in a way, it can also be a prayer. I can imagine a couple being able to say, let's make love today for so-and-so to be healed. You know, that becomes a prayer. Take your time and invite God there to be enjoying the pleasure with you. There's a tradition, not only of praying for healing for the ill, but doing good deeds, often Torah study, in the merit of someone who is ill. So in suggesting that making love be in the service of healing, Reb Zalman elevates lovemaking to the level of Torah study and other good deeds. Making love with a consciousness of holiness connects sexuality to God. I appreciate the weight of this concept. Lovemaking should be about more than just the two people involved. And maybe God should be there too. And beyond that, the merit created during the actual act should be used to improve the life of someone who's suffering. But even just saying these words out loud makes me cringe. Lovemaking is the most intimate, vulnerable, and personal activity two people can do. And even the idea of bringing God into that seems strangely invasive. But talking about a sick person in the community right before sex sounds in the least distracting. Yes, 
and maybe it's worth the distraction. Devoting a moment to another person amidst the intimacy could affect change for them. I think you and I are looking at this through different paradigms. It's important to me and necessary to Reb Zalman's suggestion that prayer makes a difference. One of my favorite texts in the Talmud is one that connects action to prayer. This text suggests that prayer is a quintessential component of Judaism by claiming that Abraham, the first Jew, davened shachrit, or the morning prayer. The Torah itself never explicitly mentions Abraham praying, but the text asserts that where the Torah says that Abraham stood, it means prayed, and so too for his son, Isaac. When Isaac went out to speak in the field, it meant to pray. Reb Zalman's idea seems to be on the same continuum. If every action has a function on a metaphysical level, that means sex, too, can be prayer. Reb Zalman's suggestion, though, is not only that any action can be for the purpose of connecting to God, but that we can experience things God cannot. God doesn't have a tongue, so we should enjoy tasting so that God can enjoy tasting. God doesn't have a body. Enjoy making love so that God, too, can enjoy making love. Inviting God into our experience can be enriching to God. Hold on. God has no tongue, so God can't taste. God has no body, so God can't orgasm. My concept of God, as confusing as it often is, consists mostly of a vision of an all-powerful being, a God that has complete access, a God that is everything. I thought that was the universal Jewish concept of God. It's my sense that there's not a universal Jewish concept of God. When I studied at the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem, Rabbi David Levenkras opened a class stating that we were not to say, Judaism says, yada, 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 but rather, I think, yada, 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 because nearly everything exists in the Jewish canon of text and thought. Nearly every concept of God has been considered within Judaism. There are many ways to interpret, but in the Torah, God speaks with Moses and the Jewish people and is appeased by the smell of sacrificial offerings. Philosophers discuss God as inside and outside of all of creation. There are several names of God, each with its own linguistic and contextual connotation. I think Reb Zalman's understanding of God is more like what Rabbi Shai Held discussed in our episode on love and death. Kabbalah says that God is mitztamtzim, God contracts into God's self to make space for others. The Kabbalah says that when God was getting ready to create the world, God had no space to create in God's infiniteness. There was nothing except God. And so God contracted to create space for the earth. God created the world so that God could experience through people experiencing. So Reb Zalman recommends inviting God into the bedroom, and not only that, but into the orgasm itself. Whatever pleasure we feel, we don't want to hide it from you, you know? And especially when the explosion comes at the orgasm to us, offer this up. That's the korban that we, that we can offer to God, that energy explosion. It's fascinating that Reb Zalman uses this terminology. A korban is an offering coming from the word karov, or close. The word, though, bears the weight of the primary form of service of God in times of the temple in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. 
A typical korban in the temple was not an orgasm, but an animal sacrifice, wine, or grain. One of the surprising elements of this suggestion is that, in fact, sex in the temple was forbidden, and a priest who had had a seminal emission was forbidden from working in the temple before ritual cleansing. But we don't live in the times of the temple, and orgasm is among the strongest physical sensations available to us. When we can't offer God the blood and fat of choice oxen, our outstanding pleasure, and as Reb Zalman says, energy explosion, can perhaps replace formal service of God. Reb Zalman suggests that it's not only sex between two committed partners that has the potential to be beautiful and sacred, but masturbation as well. I was talking to a bar boy and asked him, do you masturbate? And he said yes. He was ashamed that I should ask him this question, but he said yes. So I said, you know, I'd like to make a suggestion to you. If you can, keep it. Don't do it during the week. So you exercise control over yourself. And on Shabbos, take your time. Don't rush through it. Don't act as if it's a bad thing to do. Honor your body in every way and uh, take your time and invite God there to be enjoying the pleasure with you. Not only did Reb Zalman suggest that the young boy masturbate on the holiest day of the week, but that he include God in the process. Now, you can imagine how some people would hear this and they would get very boigous with me and say, I'm seducing kids. But when you start looking, I'm not saying they should do it with anyone else. I'm saying in the privacy of their room, learn to do it. They'll be better lovers when they get married too, instead of uh, jacking off so, so no one should know and, and they should relieve themselves. This becomes a, a celebration. Unabashed masturbation. Take it slowly. Celebrate. Reb Zalman said this to a bar mitzvah boy, but what about young women relating to their bodies? Aviva Richman, a doctoral candidate at New York University and creator of Vaginal Monologues Meet the Talmud, suggests that it's possible that Jewish women are instructed to masturbate as well. Before getting married, a woman should engage in examinations to see if there is blood. In a list of contaminating emissions in Leviticus, it forbids sex between a man and woman for seven days from the beginning of her period, or for seven clean days following any unusual emission. Later custom conflated these practices such that many observant couples since then have refrained from sex for the days of menstruation and an additional seven days after. The end of a couple's time of separation is marked by going to the mikveh, a ritual bath. Women self-examine during these seven clean days to be sure they are not bleeding. But in some ways it, it seems a little bit absurd because if there's no reason for a woman to assume that she'll have her period then, right, then why should she be checking? This applied even to young women, girls, getting married before the onset of menstruation. Why should she be checking her body for blood? And you actually see this reflected even among medieval scholars on this topic, right, where here it's framed as after becoming engaged, the bride and groom are meant to stay, to stay apart cannot have sex for seven days, and she's supposed to be checking herself for blood. Medieval commentators also are like, what do you mean? What, why should she assume that there's blood just because she became engaged? And the Talmud has a way of describing this as dam chimud, blood of desire. 
that maybe when a woman gets excited because she's getting engaged, she'll bleed seems clearly to correspond to the male body when it gets excited, right? Excrete something, it's not blood. What do women excrete? Blood, so she must bleed. It's hard to connect the dots totally, though understandable for men to be trying to figure out what's happening in women's bodies when they don't entirely know. The point is, you see even in the medieval scholars, they're not really talking about blood anymore. And, and you see that reflected in them saying, well, she doesn't really have to check every day. Um, she doesn't really have to check that deeply. Um, she doesn't have to insert the cloth that's generally used for these examinations that deeply because it's really not about blood. And the question is, if it's not about blood, what is it about? Girls who have not been sexually active before marriage, um, and if this is a first marriage, then then maybe one way of reading this is about women, or probably in these texts, young women kind of becoming familiar to some extent with their vaginal area before intercourse. I think when it comes down to it, there's women who are part of a culture where they're not particularly sexually active, or for any woman before she has her first sexual encounter, where could we read this as saying that this woman needs to become familiar with her body, even if it's just so that she can perform these examinations, so that the encounter and sex will at least come from a place of a little bit more familiarity about the body. The suggestion here is that perhaps a woman should explore her body, masturbate, before marriage. Perhaps a woman should get to know herself, in the biblical sense, before she gets to know her husband. Here's Bruce again. For me, the key is to not overlook the enormous informing quality of intimacy. The, the medium of intimacy is vulnerability. The way one experiences and the domain in which intimacy works is in sharing, experiencing, being considerate of others' vulnerability. So sex is kind of the, the central place of experiencing that vulnerability. So we veil the bride to say, I, I want to be able to use our beauty together, I guess you would say, but I don't want my view of you to be confused too much by how beautiful you are. We need to work during this period on intimacy which is not enforced by or supported by or something like that, physical or sexual intimacy, but we need to have a real intellectual and spiritual connectedness beyond that. And beyond the wedding, every month during menstruation, Nida, the laws which prevent sex and other physical contact between husband and wife during a woman's menstruation, can serve to monthly reinforce this intellectual and spiritual intimacy. If you say, we're going to now show for another period of time, that our connection can sustain or be strengthened even if we have to be separated sexually. Practices regulating touch are about being able to see beyond the trappings of the flesh to the heart of another person. The laws of Nita nourish those connections without the distraction and bias created through sex. 
My understanding of Nita is that its purpose is to create a space and time for sex to be as powerful as possible. The Torah seems to relate to Nita as an issue of purity and proper sexual conduct. In practice, though, it also has the potential to create mindfulness around touch. What happens when sexuality is not only about attraction between females and males? What happens when gender is not so clear? Judaism is so built on gender difference. This is David Schneer, the head of the Jewish Studies Department at the University of Colorado at Boulder and board member for Keshet, a national organization that works to promote the full inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Jews in Jewish life. The fundaments of Judaism are about women are fundamentally, essentially different from men. My favorite thing to think about is the mechitza, the thing that in a traditional synagogue divides men from women. And the usual explanation for a mechitza is that women are considered sexual objects or seen as sexual objects by men. Men can't, Jewish men can't control themselves. So we, put, we have to put women to the side so that when men are praying, they can really focus on their prayer. Well, how does same-sex desire transform this whole idea of a mechitza? I actually had this thought of like, if this were the case, if that were really the basis of a mechitza, everyone would need to be in an isolated cubicle so that really you can only focus on prayer because you never know if you're going to be attracted to the person next to you who may be bisexual or gay or straight. In a system where there is no more binary, how does Judaism function? Is there any boundary? Are there any boundaries anymore based on things like gender and sexuality? So from my vantage point, a queer Judaism is one where it shakes the whole foundation of Judaism and um, it throws into question this whole idea of what one can or can't do in Judaism based on who they are, based on their identity. Saying that we are religious. This is Mimi Arbeit, who runs a Jewish sex ed program in Boston, Massachusetts. Here, she's talking about religious in the broad sense of the word, those who practice and engage religion, not necessarily the orthodox. Saying that we are religious and we believe in comprehensive sex ed, in queerness, in same-sex marriage, in the rights of transgender people, in a woman's rights to choose, in prosecuting sexual violence, And to say as religious people that we don't believe in slut-shaming, we do not believe in homophobia or transphobia, we do not believe that abstinence only until marriage is the only option for every American teen, and that we don't even believe every American teen needs to grow up and get married one day, I think it's essential to talk about sex and sexuality across boundaries because we're all living in the same world. We're all voting on policy issues together. We are teaching our children together. We are on the internet together. We are watching the news together. And we need to understand each other. And we need to understand each other's experiences and respect each other's values. I think doing Jewish sex ed to critique the Jewish tradition and Judaism is also essential because we have inherited a patriarchal tradition. And for me, I can't be Jewish, I can't do Jewish things unless I am also grappling with that. 
it would be dishonest to identify as a Jew and to to do Jewish activities and to celebrate Jewish holidays without noticing and grappling with and reworking at every turn how the tradition addresses women and gender and sex. It's amazing how quickly Judaism in America has transformed in the last 40 years. Underlying all of those changes, I would say, is feminism from the 60s, which really created space for these kinds of political movements. I mean, the rabbinate for the first time in its history, 3,000-year-old history, now has more women than men. I think there is a great risk of using a model of citizenship and belonging in the ritual Jewish community that is a kind of antiquated, nostalgic look back to a society that we no longer live in. This is Rabbi Ethan Tucker, co-founder and chair in Jewish law at Mechon Hadar in New York City, where he teaches halacha, Jewish law, or as he calls it, the language of Jewish normative expectation. Gender egalitarianism for me is not about finding some uh, loophole or leniency in order to accommodate people who want more opportunity. And to the extent it's that, it'll have a very short shelf life. Gender egalitarianism has a future in the Jewish tradition if it is understood, ultimately, to be the faithful and pious application of our inherited texts to our contemporary reality. A good deal of Jewish law over the ages has been relegated to either female or male spheres of responsibility or has fallen differently on men than on women. There have been hints over time, though, that aspects of this understanding of women's roles were sociological rather than biological. For instance, a widowed father of dependent children is, like women, exempt from time-bound commandments to be able to parent his children. In many rabbinic sources that deal with ritual participation and who is fit to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah and other, other various items like that, you'll find grouped together with the same laws applying to them, women, slaves, and minors. Okay, a triad we would never articulate today. We'd be embarrassed to articulate something like that in, uh, in polite company. Uh, but rabbinic sources have no problem talking about nashim avadim uktanim, women, slaves, and minors. Now, the faithful interpreter of that text, who really just genuinely wants to apply that text to the contemporary reality, um, has two choices. One is to say, well, the text says women, and it may seem odd to me in my environment, but if I want to be faithful to this tradition, I have no choice but to say, well, I guess women can't blow the shofar for men, or I guess women are exempt from saying certain prayers on a daily basis because the texts say that women can't say them. Okay, that's possible, and maybe that's right, but I would be a little nervous that maybe the definition of women in those texts actually is intimately bound up with the juxtaposition of women with the terms slaves and minors. That is to say, maybe the ability of those texts to talk about women, slaves, and minors indicates that women in that text is a sociological rather than a biological category. Again, not because I'm coming along and I'm uncomfortable with it, but because if I'm genuinely exploring that text, 
I may say, well, wait a minute, it only actually makes sense to group these people together if there's some common denominator between them. Maybe the reason women are grouped here is maybe these are the three main adjuncts of ancient society and medieval and early modern society for that matter. Women are adjuncts to their husbands, their fathers, the other men playing a central role in the patriarchal structure of society. Slaves are adjuncts to their masters and children are minors to their, are adjuncts to their parents um, and to the other adults in society. This idea that women could be considered a sociological term rather than a biological one is not an easy concept to grasp. But Rabbi Tucker suggests here that because women were, at the time these texts were written, bunched together with other non-citizens, they were sociologically unfit for primary communal religious responsibilities, such as serving as a witness or leading communal prayer. But now that women are increasingly considered equal citizens in our society, they should, and do, stand on equal footing as men, and should be held to the same standards when it comes to prayer and inclusion in ritual obligations. And maybe, actually, if I applied those texts to contemporary women, I would actually be distorting that text and misapplying it. That is to say, to exempt a contemporary woman who is a free economic agent, has in terms of her rights of suffrage and ability to contribute to society uh, the same kind of access as to her contemporary men. Uh, to exempt her from something uh, that one is not exempting men from might actually be the equivalent in the ancient world exempting a whole subset of men from the obligations that the texts assume are obligatory. So I think that's one thing that's very important. We don't enter into the conversation of gender egalitarianism in order to catch up with the contemporary West. We ask as citizens of the contemporary West, what do these texts mean in our context? And it could be that Nashim Avadim Uktanim, women, slaves, and minors, is accurately translated as non-citizens, not women, slaves, and minors in the sense of women today falling in that category. Today we live in a time when women make up the majority of American medical school classes and act as heads of state. Even in families where women decide to stay home with their children or in other caregiving roles, our women are educated and have equal voting rights as men. Despite lingering misogyny, Western women are hardly adjuncts. Gender egalitarianism is one challenge to legal texts about gender roles. Queer Judaism, though, goes beyond a bifurcation of genders. Queer Judaism questions gender roles, gender identity, and sexual identity. Though there is an age-old awareness of homosexual acts, it's not clear how long people have identified as homosexual. With the development of public queer identities and non-heterosexual orientations, several approaches to the biblical view of homosexuality have emerged within the Jewish community. These have ranged from suppressing homosexuality in order to unquestioningly uphold received tradition to disregarding Jewish legal frameworks to embrace queer identities. The in-between space, though, of engaging halacha, Jewish law, as a developing entity has led to some beautiful interpretations for the inclusion and full respect of openly homosexual community members. The text most often cited as the biblical source forbidding homosexuality is Leviticus 18.22, where it is written, You shall not lie the lyings of a woman with a male. It is a toeva. 
Toeva is usually translated as abomination. As author, scholar, and activist J. Michelson points out, this term is the same one used in the Bible to describe eating shrimp. Michelson translates toeva as taboo rather than abomination, which itself may lessen some anxiety around homosexuality. Rabbi Tucker again. One of the, the ideas that, you know, I, I don't think it's just me, but that I, I have played around with is what would it look like from a religious halachic perspective if we were able to consider homosexuality similar to the ways that halachic literature thinks about handedness. Um, there are many mitzvot that it's assumed one has to do with one's right hand. A mitzvah, or plural mitzvot, is a command written in the Torah or by the rabbis. So for instance, tying one's tefillin onto one's body is done with the right hand, which means one puts the tefillin uh, on the left hand. Tefillin, or in English, phylacteries, are small boxes containing specific passages of Torah, handwritten on parchment. These black boxes are on leather straps and tied and wrapped around the arm and forehead for morning prayers daily, except on Shabbat. So those, those phylacteries, those concrete you know, expressions of the Word of God, are being put on with the right hand on the left hand, and that's understood how it needs to happen. The question came up very early, what do you do with left-handed people? And there were different responses, and some of the early responses indicate, well, lefties have to just do it the same way as righties, and it's too bad. And others who said, no, obviously for them it flips. And the ability for there to be a voice in a conversation that essentially says, there's a serious requirement here. It's not as if we're saying, eh, it doesn't really matter which hand you put it on. Right? If the righty puts the tefillin on the right hand, tying it with their left, it's invalid. Everyone agrees they haven't fulfilled that mitzvah. But nonetheless, to say even though that matters, if God creates people differently, that mitzvah might devolve differently upon them. The relative application or practice of halakha is a striking piece of this idea. One of the primary functions of halakha as a set of cultural norms is just that, that it prescribes a certain sameness of practices. Of course, there are always communities that interpret things differently, but this is not reading two interpretations of one verse, but two distinct implications of one verse. The mitzvah should come from a place of strength and integrity, whether that means left or right hands. It's more about the body and intention of a given individual completing the task in a way that honors the intent of the command than it is about communal conformity. I think opens up an interesting pathway to potentially thinking about human sexuality, which is to say, instead of doing what many contemporary thinkers about sexuality and religion have done, which is to say, maybe we just need to open up sexuality as not being heteronormative, as not being focused on it really mattering who your partner is and what their gender is and their sexuality, etc. To maybe say, well, no, maybe we are still invested in that conversation. Maybe there are people who are heterosexually inclined. Clearly, that is a sort of normal way that they would live their lives. And for them to stray from that has a certain element of deviance and that that's what the Torah is talking about. And the Torah wants us to channel our sexual desires in a certain kind of natural and normal way. And there are ways that are straying from that path. But at the same time to say, but when I look out in God's world, I see that not everyone is created with that as their normal, natural proclivity. And it could be that for them, 
a faithful application of the verse in Vayikra and Leviticus actually demands a kind of reverse application, the way the tefillin switches on the hands from the righty to the lefty. Do not lie with a male as you would lie with a woman. Becomes, if your orientation is to lie with men, do not lie with a female the lyings of a man. Sexuality should be in a context of honesty. So, if your natural proclivity is to have sex with women, don't have sex with men. If your natural proclivity is to have sex with men, don't have sex with women. Rav Eitan's suggestion is elegant and inclusive of people who identify as homosexual, but sexual identity can be more nuanced than homosexual versus heterosexual. Rabbi Stephen Greenberg, author of Wrestling with God and Men, Homosexuality in the Jewish Tradition, reads this verse in Leviticus differently. Rather than Rabbi Tucker's read that the strictures implied may be relative based on a person's natural dominant sexual orientation, Rabbi Greenberg employs other rabbinic interpretive tools to understand the overall meaning of this text to forbid any sex with men or women that demeans or humiliates a partner. Both Rabbi Tucker and Rabbi Greenberg read that verse in Leviticus, which is often translated to explain how the Torah forbids gay sex, to teach that sex, all sex, should be honoring of both parties involved. For Rav Eitan, sex should be in line with one's sexual orientation, the only way to have a relationship that can be wholly honest. For Rabbi Greenberg, sex should not be about power, but a manifestation of mutual respect. Both of these approaches strive to honor both sexual partners as whole people and for their whole beings, while also engaging Torah and traditional Jewish patterns of interpretation. Modern sexual identities are by no means limited to gay or straight. The word queer has been reclaimed to describe non-straight sexual identities. David Schneer again. And the word queer has many definitions. Um, at its, Frankly, at its most banal, it just is a way of putting all of these people under these various um, smaller identity labels like lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, under one label. The, the more sophisticated use of the word is to say that sexual identities like lesbian and gay are too fixed, they're too bounded, they presume that people don't change over time, and the word queer allows people to have an identity that's not so fixed. Terms like lesbian and gay refer to sexual orientation, but queer covers a broader spectrum of sexuality and identity, including transgender. Rafi Doherty was born female, but never felt 100% himself as a girl. My name is Rafi Doherty. I'm 29 years old. When I was little, kind of my first memories were of wishing to be a boy. And when I was very young, I had um, what they call magical thinking. And so I thought, oh, well, if I pray hard enough, God will change me into a boy. Or if I'm really good, God will change me into a boy. Or if I do A, B, or C, or eat spinach, then God will turn me into a boy. None of that ever happened. And um, I think at about age 10, I gave up on magical thinking, realized God made me a girl, and that I would just have to deal with that. Rafi just moved to Denver after seven years in New York City. Before that, he lived in St. Louis, Missouri. My parents got divorced when I was about six, and we lived with my mother, so we were transferred into an Orthodox Jewish day school. She always really wanted us to live a very sheltered life. And she really saw Orthodoxy as the means to that end. 
Rafi fit in well at school. As a kid, Rafi attended an Orthodox Jewish girls' school, Beis Yaakov. He enjoyed high school, enjoyed his friends, and found a place for himself among the confusion of lipstick and high heels. One thing I will point out in terms of sexuality is that as far back as I can remember, I was always attracted to boys. And as a little girl, that was just kind of normal. So even though I had kind of masculine proclivities in certain ways or felt about myself that I was a boy or should have been a boy, I was always attracted to boys. So that wasn't really a point. It, I didn't feel like left out from my peers. I didn't feel confused about my sexual orientation. And um, somewhere along the line, I was given the idea that all girls want to be boys. And it may have been one of those things like, oh, all girls wish they were boys sometimes. But somehow I got the message that all girls wished they were boys. So I just figured life sucks, you know, when you're a girl. People didn't sit down and say, you know, it's not okay for you to be so masculine. But I would get hints that my behavior was not okay here and there. Like, oh, come on, girls don't do that. Or, you know, sit like a lady. Or don't eat so fast. After high school, Rafi went to a women's seminary in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem. But he started experiencing difficulties in practicing strict orthodoxy. He went back to St. Louis to try to get back on track and go to college and found himself struggling again. When he was 21, he realized that he was attracted to masculine women and worried what that might mean. So he moved to an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in New York City called Flatbush. I don't really know, but I had a feeling that that would get me away from it. Ironically, New York is where I found JQY, which stands for Jewish Queer Youth. Um, I started to openly date women. You know, I dated a, a couple of women around that time, and I started joining JQY, and I was actually the one quote-unquote woman who kept coming to JQY. It was all, all guys and then me, or like me and one other girl, or me and two other girls, but I was the only consistent female that showed up. And knowing that I was attracted to men, because I told them that I was attracted to men, um, they used to say, oh, you're just a... You're just a gay man trapped in a lesbian's body. I always felt like I made a very bad lesbian. I just wasn't that into women. At a certain point, I, I stopped believing that I could date men because I still identified as a woman, and I could not fathom the idea of being some guy's girlfriend. It just didn't make sense, so I figured that made me a lesbian, obviously. Rafi remained in the Jewish community, although he felt he was only marginally involved. He worked with an Orthodox group home and often accompanied special needs women to synagogue. There were a couple times I even went to an Orthodox shul wearing pants when I really just couldn't couldn't bear wearing a skirt anymore. And so that I mean I think I felt I would say like I like putting things in percentages, and I would say that living as a butch or masculine woman made me feel about eighty percent myself, or maybe eighty-five percent better in my own skin. And eighty-five percent is awesome but it's not 100%. So Rafi took great strides to bridge the two worlds he was living in, the regulated and strict Jewish world and the newfound territory of alternative sexual identities. So one of the breaking points for me was um, there was a wedding of a young woman from St. Louis, which is where my mom lives still, in New York. And I was going to be going there, and I knew that everyone at the wedding would report to my mother about how I looked. So I grew, I intentionally grew my hair a little longer, and, and that night I like straightened it, and I put on this suede suit that I actually really loved it. It was, you know, a woman's suit, but had like a long, it was a long tan suede jacket, 
and a short suede skirt with little pink and maroon flowers on the bottom of it. And I really loved it. I thought it was a beautiful outfit. I felt strange wearing it, but I really loved the way it looked. And um, I put on makeup, and I think I probably looked pretty fabulous that night, and um, went to the wedding, and it just felt horrible. I felt like a fraud. I felt like I was behind a mask the whole time. There was definitely something wrong um, about that night. And the next night, my boss at the time had me at her wedding, and I came with the women that I worked with, and I wore a suit, a black suit with a tie and a hat. And I did get some funny looks because people were wondering why I was dancing on the women's section. And as I was leaving, like, somebody definitely called me sir or, like, in some way implied that they thought I was male, and I was totally thrilled. Rafi began the transition process of finally becoming a man by attending a trans-masculine support group for female-to-male transitions in New York City. And I went to the support group, and I was terrified. But I looked around the room, and I just, I had this moment of, like, all my walls kind of coming down and realizing that I related to everyone in that room more than I'd related to anyone in my life. And once the walls started to come down, it all began. He was assessed by therapists to make sure he was mentally competent to make a life-changing decision to change sex. Thank God for my sanity, he told us. He told himself that if at any moment he experienced even a small twinge of regret, if at any moment he thought this was the wrong thing to do, he would stop turn around, apologize to everyone for the confusion, and resume his female form. Nearly five years have passed, and that moment hasn't come yet. In July of 2007, Rafi started a daily regimen of testosterone, and after a few months, he became more and more himself. Musculature, bone structure, fat proportioning, facial hair, all began to change. But yeah, my voice changed pretty slowly. So I started in July. By September, it was starting to change noticeably to people who saw me face to face. By October, it changed enough that my mother stopped speaking to me. My stepfather still continued talking to me, and he was fantastic. He would call every Friday to give me a bracha. Traditionally, each Friday night, Jewish parents give their children brachas, or blessings. They bless their sons that they should grow up to be like the great forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they bless their daughters that they should be like their great foremothers, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. He would always call to give me the girl version of the bracha, and I never would have asked him to change that because I knew he strongly didn't agree with what I was doing. But he actually asked me, he said, you know, would you like me to start giving you the boys version? And I was just totally struck by that. I, could, I couldn't believe he was offering it to me, and I told him, you know, no, not yet. A couple of months later, Rafi had a name change ceremony. He took on the name Rachamim Raphael Yehoshua. That Friday, I, you know, I said, Michael, would you give me that, you know, the boy bracha? And he did, and it was, a really, it was really magical that he was able to kind of see beyond himself and his own religious beliefs to be able to support me in that way. I think I'm blessed because I don't have... I don't carry around a negativity about being transgender. I don't, you know, I'm not angry that I was born this way. I feel like I had some really awesome experiences being raised as female, and I'm able to relate to people in a much better way. I was socialized to be able to express my emotions, which a lot of males are not. And I have a lot of gratitude for that.
Come and Listen is brought to you with support from the Tikva Venture Fund, the Bronfman Youth Fellowships in Israel Alumni Venture Fund, the Maizal Museum, and listeners like you. Thanks to Mimi Arbeit, Rechamim Raphael Yehoshua Doherty, Bruce Heitler, Aviva Richman, Zalman Schechter, David Schneer, and Ethan Tucker. Thanks also to Karen Aviv, Shifra Brandt, Yoni Rabinovich, Stephen Greenberg, Shai Held, and Yoni Ashar. Thanks to Andrew McGuire and Eric Kuhn for the incredible Come and Listen music. Thank you to the faculty at Machon Hadar and to our friends and family. Check us out on our website, www.comeandlisten.com, where you can listen to all of our episodes and short episodes, respond to what you hear, and support this project. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Come and Listen is produced by Alyssa Kapnick. Your hosts are Alyssa Kapnick and Hannah Kapnick. Hehehe. <laughs>